Time now for our global politics uh, slot and uh, glad to be joined as always by politics and economics student uh, at Trinity, Thomas Conway. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Fran. And uh, good to see you. We're going to begin with uh, President Zelensky because he did address the UN uh, Assembly. Um, What did he have to say? Well, to put it in essence, evil cannot be trusted, which is putting it pretty bluntly, putting it pretty starkly, really, uh, one has to say. He made a passionate speech to the UN General Assembly last week. And there are, I suppose, the background to this is there are all these questions around the UN and whether it's legitimate, whether it's viable, because obviously you have certain countries with veto powers. Uh, You had certain non-attendances of this event. Rishi Sunak wasn't there. Uh, Emmanuel Macron wasn't there, nor was Xi Jinping, nor was... Uh, Vladimir Putin, of course. So a question over the the legitimacy or the credibility Mm. of the UN as an institution. But Zelensky in his speech didn't hold back. Uh, He went for it, as they say, and he condemned Russia outright. He condemned the war in its totality uh, and pushed other Western powers to keep supplying Ukraine with weapons, Mm. keep that steady stream of weapons uh, being supplied to Ukraine, which he deems essential, uh, which is yes. essential, I guess, for Ukraine's survival. And, and making the point that uh, Ukraine will continue with this war to to the bitter end. Really, yeah, essentially, yeah. essentially. And I mean, we we've had various developments in the war, I suppose, to date. The most recent being the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which hasn't really yielded the gains that, that it may have been envisaged in the first place. It's kind of failed to, to take hold. I think the Russian positions in Russian-occupied regions are very well fortified. They're very well dug in, in other words, uh, and their lines are very hard to penetrate. But Zelensky has made, remained firm. He's remained adamant. He says, you know, we're going to sweep these Russian forces out of the country, like it or not, and that's going to be, uh, that's our ultimate objective, that's our ultimate goal. And until we, until such a time as we achieve that, uh, then there will be no concessions on the negotiating table, which is an interesting part. It's an interesting mm. side to take. I'm not sure about it myself. I can see you're looking sceptically across at me. Just a little bit, because I just don't happen to think that enough people are, are talking peace here, because um, you know, as these addresses to the UN go on, as Zelensky goes all around the world, and he's it's fine for him to do so, but young men, and it's largely young men, are dying every single day in this. Essentially, know? essentially, and that is true. And I think there are, there are two ways of looking at this. So mm. one way is that you have one sovereign country invading another, invading its territory, and how can you condone that? How is it's reprehensible? Well, nobody is condoning that. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think anybody can. No, I, I don't. Yeah. I don't think so. Yes. The other side of it is this is the reality of global politics. This is the reality of international relations in the world we live in. in Invasions do happen. They haven't happened for a while, but this is the cold, hard reality of war. And in order for peace to be achieved, negotiators have to come to the table and have to iron out some kind of solution. And that is, I think, where uh, where Zelensky has been reluctant. He really is forthright. He really is adamant, absolutely adamant, mm. uh, that Ukraine be... But at uh, what stage will other countries tire of supporting Ukraine, particularly where the offensive is concerned, and and that not working, what will they and are they beginning? To I think they are already. Be, I think there's an element of Ukraine fatigue yes. setting in in certain parts among certain leaders. I mean, we we we've had skeptics from the outset. President Emmanuel Macron of France was highly skeptical in the beginning. He mm. tried to negotiate with Vladimir Putin. That kind of fell through. Uh, eventually, mm. he's now one of Ukraine's foremost supporters. But there is a frustration on the part of the West. You see 
you over the weekend, Poland uh, has refused yeah. to send certain weapons to Ukraine. Poland one of, being one of the prime allies of Ukraine up to now. Uh, we had Zelensky touching down in Shannon Airport over the weekend to meet the Sudanese leader, pleading for help from the global south. So, you know, a lot of scepticism amongst southern nations, the poorer nations, developing nations of the world about this war. They see it rather differently than the vantage point of the West. Uh, so you have a lot of questions there, a lot of questions that need answers. And and I, I find it intriguing myself. I wonder how long it can go on like this. I wonder how long we can have forces fighting in sort of a stalemate battle. As you say, soldiers being killed, civilians being killed, without an end in sight. It is... It's going to be interesting. And now there's talk from certain uh, people, certainly in, in America, but d- demanding largely that uh, Zelensky would hold elections even though it's wartime. Now, he's saying, how can you hold uh, an election properly during wartime? But uh, that's an interesting... It's an intriguing scenario to think. I mean, how do you hold an election during wartime? Let's remember, Ukraine is effectively under martial law now at this stage. All men over the age of 18 and under the age of 65 are obliged to fight in the army unless they they have other reasons. The country is... Uh, has been broken apart, in, is fragmented to a certain extent. Okay, some areas have have come back to life in uh, in recent day, in recent months and weeks, but you know, still a very very difficult situation on the ground. The logistics of actually holding an election would be next to near impossible, I mm. think. But Zelensky is firmly against it, as you say. Uh, yeah. He fears the effect it would probably have on solidarity for him and well, support for him. Well, that's the point too, isn't it? Because naturally enough, when you have an election, you're going to have opposing views. And you could see the country split down the middle, uh, I suppose. And that's you know? indeed yeah. the case. And he is a politician. He does care about his time in office, even if he is a wartime president or a wartime president. Uh, you know, he still has to rely on people's votes. Uh, and he would be wary, I guess, of any challengers to him. So it's a really intriguing scenario. It's one that's going to play out over the following months and weeks. On the Russian side of it, I can't see anything changing much. I think they will continue to uh, hold their ground in in parts of Russian-occupied Ukraine. Uh, It's a very difficult one to, to, to predict. Isn't it indeed? Now, with all that happened last week uh, in uh, Dublin, for instance, there was much talk about the rights and the hard rights and uh, all of that. But uh, you reckon a real threat from Europe's hard right? Yeah, a real threat from Europe's hard right. And, and you, you know, I suppose what happened the do- outside the door last Wednesday, the far right protesters, was was frightening to a certain degree. Some, some people argue we've made too much of it. Uh, others feel we haven't made enough of it. But at the end of the day, it was a set of far-right agitators agitating outside the gates of our national parliament. But the reality is, Fran, that across much of Europe, there is a new tidal wave of far-right movements sweeping the continent. We only have to look as far as Italy, in which the Giorgio Maloney, the uh, the Italian prime minister, the first effectively far-right prime minister since Benito Mussolini, the first leader of that country, uh, and her Brothers of Italy party, uh, which would be a, mm. a, a well-known far-right faction. Now, they haven't proved to be as, we'll say, uh, dramatic in power as some might have anticipated. They've moderated their stances slightly, but they're still a far-right party. There are still very staunch far-right views there, and it's similar across much of Europe in different places. In the Spanish general election, we had a party, Vox, 
far right themselves. In Germany, support for the alternative for Deutschland party has skyrocketed. They're now the second largest party in the country behind the Christian Democrats, which is worrying in itself. And and all the ingredients there that we've seen uh, in history as well for the rise of the right, when you think of, you know, inflation, immigration. Uh, Absolutely. You have all these issues yeah. converging together, all the ingredients, as you say, and sowing the seeds for a... For a movement, and that yes. is that is what these far right movements are designed to do. Now, is there an argument to be made that we might be worrying too much because there's been sur- surges of of the right over the last few decades? Yeah, and we've seen them in the past. They they have occurred. There was one in the two thousands, the early two thousands in mm. Switzerland. Uh, you had kind of. Uh, uh, a far-right party came to power. Then we had the European migration crisis in and around 2015, Angela Merkel allowing some one million migrants into the country. It fueled that alternative for Deutschland party, which I just mentioned there. That was effectively the inception of that party and it drove the growth of it uh, mm. in recent years. We had Brexit and a lot of parties, a lot of sure. far-right parties across Europe have learned lessons from Brexit. They've learned that you know, exiting the European Union isn't necessarily the best option on the table for them at this point in time. Exiting the euro currency, that they may have to take a softer line in Europe. And that is what has differentiated uh, these modern-day far-right parties from even their predecessors just a few years ago. They're a little bit more nuanced in their views. They're slightly more moderate. They're still far-right in essence. Uh, but they have a slightly different outlook in terms of certain issues, in terms of maybe the European Union and their place That's within interesting. it. interesting. And uh, Le Pen, I suppose, is a great example. Le Pen, of, a great of, example. Of, of that. Uh, you make a very interesting point, and it really had me thinking, which is that if you take centrist parties, then what should they do? But you're talking about the notion of involving the right. It looks you to know, be the only way. Yeah. It looks to be the only way because if you think about it, the only way in order for these parties to moderate is for, for them to have a taste of governance, a taste of the pressures uh, and the reality, pitfalls, of, politics, the reality yeah. of politics, the real yeah. politic yeah. of of government and incorporating them into government, incorporating them into the political system is the only way that can be achieved. And in various countries, it has sort of worked. Like we look at Italy and we look at Giorgio Maloney, the Prime Minister and the Brothers of Italy Party, they've had to roll back on some of their core promises because just the stark realities of governing there, they realise that they don't have the budget to finance such expenditure measures. Uh, they don't have the the means to make certain uh, reforms and proposals as they might have uh, sought prior to the election. So I think that is the, the key the key message here is for centrist parties, the likes of, we'll say, the Social Democrats in Germany, for instance, uh, even parties in this country, to look towards the far-right fringes and say, well, look, you know, we're opening our doors here. We need to, we need to invite you in for reforms and discussion. We need to actively discuss what means we can use to... Uh, yeah. Uh, to it's, it's a very interesting take, Thomas, because it does reflect what some of our listeners are saying to us here, that, you know, if you, if you have single narratives and if you cast people aside and call them monstrous and all of that, you create a vacuum, and that vacuum will be filled then by 
you know. Well, fundamentally, it alienates people. Yes, you alienate yeah. and you ostracise people and that will drive them <clears> further <throat> towards the margins. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And that is the reality. That has happened in much of Europe across the past decade. And I think centrist parties are slowly learning the lessons from that. Now, whether they've learned them enough remains to be seen. We have European Parliament elections next year. They will be crucial, yeah. absolutely crucial in determining the future trajectory of the far right in Europe and I suppose of other parties, the far left and centrist parties in Europe as well. So really we await them with, with bated breath, it, huge expectation behind those elections. We ask you to have a look at a historic figure for us every week and uh, this week it's uh, somebody very special I suppose from history. Yeah, A very special guy, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. I mean one of the most inspirational orators I think in of certainly of his generation of of all time we may as well say he was his speech his I have a dream speech uh in Washington of course garner has garnered millions of views has transfixed people for for decades it's still an inspiration it's still and I watched it again last week and it is delivered with such poise and such conviction and passion it is an incredible act uh, oratory uh, or act of, of speech making and really we can learn a lot from it but there was so much more to Martin Luther King than just his oratorical ability. Give, give us some of the background. He's, so he was born January 15, 1929. He was an American Baptist minister, an activist, a political fo- uh, philosopher, one of the most prominent leaders of the civil rights movement from 1955 until his assassination in 1968. He was a black church leader and the son of an early civil rights rights activist, Martin Luther King Jr. And I guess he was kind of honed or reared in that culture, reared in that culture of activism and of preaching and of... uh, the Baptist ministry, which he, he would eventually become a Baptist minister, and I suppose honed his his rhetorical skills, speaking in churches, speaking at the pulpit uh, to his uh, to his parishioners or to to congregations, large congregations of people. That was the kind of the essence, the beginning of his political career. His political career would then grow. He would participate in civil rights marches. He would lead the march on Selma. Uh, and various US cities in the fight for civil rights. And what struck me really most of all, Fran, was just his incredible bravery. I mean, his bravery to to go up against this, the Jim Crow laws, which were these pieces of legislation in the United States, which effectively uh, marginalised the black community, were, were racist against the black community. He opposed them. He, he stood his ground, he stood firm and he tried to battle against them and it, it took incredible valour, incredible yes. courage for him to do so. And in the, in the way that Gandhi did, I suppose, because I know Gandhi was a, 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 an inspiration for him. Yeah, and he had many inspirational figures. He cites Gandhi as one of them because of the peaceful notion, yes. the, the notion of <clears throat> achieving change through peace. And I think that, bit, that part of Martin Luther King was, was core, was essential. Mm. And, you know... It followed in the he's followed in the footsteps of many civil rights leaders, not not just Gandhi, but certainly his commitment to peace and peaceful ideals was at the core of his ideology. And that's why it was such a it was mm. such a shame that he was assassinated in what in nineteen sixty eight. It came yes. at such a period of turbulence for the United States. Dad and I just discussing it on the way down. Robert Kennedy would soon uh, would soon would die soon after. Another great leader, another great civil rights activist in his own right. Uh, I recall there's anecdotes of Robert Kennedy 
you know, giving speeches on the night that Martin Luther King was assassinated, pleading with people not to go out rioting, not to go out on the streets because of their commitment to peace and peaceful ideals. Uh, and that was that was the way it was back then. He broadened out uh, his battles as well uh, because, of course, Vietnam became something that he... Absolutely, absolutely. The Vietnam War, a huge issue at that point in time in American life. And of course, he didn't do all this. I mean, there were consequences to this. He was under the investigation of the FBI, of J. Edgar Hoover in the Federal Bureau of Investigation, under huge investigation from them, uh, under pressure from many circles within the US government and outside the US government. So he mm. had to balance all these things. He was effectively a man with a bounty on his head, Fran, for, to a certain degree. And obviously the assassination demonstrated that in the end. But he, he, yeah, he was an activist against the war in Vietnam, calling for peace there, calling for peace in various other conflicts across the globe. A really, really inspirational character. And a man, I think, a man, I think, who who was before his time in terms of his his ability to see what society could be like when peace reigns supreme. For sure, and you couldn't help but speculate, I suppose, if he were to live, I mean, what he would have done, you know. And that is, that yeah. is the question, and yeah. we can say the same for Robert Kennedy, we can say the same for John F. Kennedy. You know, would the world have been a very different place? Might we be standing, sitting here now in a very different space to where we actually are? You know, would mm. wars raging across the planet... Uh, had these characters been allowed to live, been allowed to fulfil fulfil their destiny, so to speak, it it's might have been very different. Interesting. Uh, what should we look out for over the next uh, few days? So lots of things happening. India and Canada in the middle of a huge diplomatic route. Justin Trudeau, I read a piece in him yesterday. He's in big trouble. Uh, he's losing support at home and there is now this row which has evolved over the past week which has emanated from the the assassination essentially of a Sikh Indian citizen, a Sikh, a branch of uh, a branch of Hinduism, mm. uh, supposed to be perpetrated by Indian authorities in Canada. Uh, Canada has accused India of directly being involved or being implicated in this assassination, which is a huge wow. charge to make. Now, other countries haven't exactly rolled in behind Canada and Mr Trudeau on this. The United States have been have been quiet enough, the UK, the uh, uh, France as well, they haven't necessarily given their outright support to Justin Trudeau. So he's treading on very thin ice here. It's a it's a hostile, it's a febrile situation, a very delicate situation that I'm not sure how it would play out uh, in the months to come. Just, just about out of time, but uh, Rishi Sunak as well, an election looming for him. What an election to? looming, and he seems to have pulled back in his green ambitions, which is, I think, very peculiar. He received a bit of praise from Donald Trump for doing so, but I mean... Well, that, that's popular that's, stuff. It, it is popular stuff. stuff. I'm surprised by Sunak. He's essentially scaled back Britain's net zero commitments. Yes. So this is Britain's commitments to sustainable green energy uh, and making sustainable investments in that. He's rolled them back. He's, he's delayed the uh, the the outlaw of, of yes. petrol and diesel vehicles and some others and is, like this that. This is for votes. Really, this is for really, votes, essentially. Will you just briefly tell me about uh, the latest where the Azerbaijan story is concerned because you brought that to us a couple yeah, of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, a really, a really, a really uh, mm-hmm. delicate situation in Azerbaijan. We see it playing out over the airwaves over the past few days. At the moment, Armenia, the Armenians... Uh, 
the Armenia or uh, Azerbaijan, of course, is under Azerbaijani control, or Nagorno-Karabakh rather, mm. is under Azerbaijani control. The Armenians are fighting for for their citizens to be recognised there. The Azerbaijanis swept through in a lightning offensive uh, in recent days and have effectively secured control of the region at this point in time, it's a very delicate situation. It's a joke. situation which I don't think can be resolved anytime and soon. Anything from the Russians on this? Or, of course, they're preoccupied, to say the least. They but, are preoccupied, you know? but the Russians technically are backing Armenia. They also have peacekeepers in the region. I think the real question here is the role of the UN in mediating this crisis and question the legitimacy of the UN. Again, that is the theme, I think, yes. of our discussion today. Well, well, our president, Michael D, questioned that at the ploughing championships. Uh, he did, he certainly did last week. He stuck his, yeah, yeah, he stuck his head out. And, and Once again, on a couple of issues, in fact. Thomas, is always good to see you. Thanks, pleasure, Fran. Thanks, thanks, thanks very a much indeed. News and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.